Hello, and welcome back to Season 2 of the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Season 2 will focus on archival projects from conservation to documentation. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Coptic, Islamic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including virtual lectures and tours, by visiting our website at rc.org. You can also visit our archives page at archives.rc.org, and you can support our work by subscribing to our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. Today's episode is episode three of the Archives podcast, Conservation and Presentation at Carter House, with Dr. Nicholas Warner, Tom Hardwick, Sally El-Sabahi, and Mina Malad, and it is conducted by RC's Archives Manager, Andreas Kostopoulos. If you want to listen to our other episodes, visit the RC Podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Thank you so much for joining us today, and enjoy the episode. Hello, dear listeners. This is Andreas, RC's Archive Manager, and welcome back to RC's podcast, Season 2. Uh, this season is dedicated to RC's conservation archives, and today's episode is a, is a very special one as we're joined by the team led by Dr. Nicholas Warner, RC's Director of Cultural Heritage Projects that concerned and curated Howard Carter's historic home in Luxor for its reopening on November 4, 2022, just 100 years to the day that Carter discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun. So in addition to Nicholas, we also have Tom Hardwick, the project's Egyptologist, Sally El Sabahi, RC's Heritage Outreach and Planning Manager, and Mina Milad, founder of the Luxor Times and the project's historic and archival expert. This Carter House dream team worked around the clock, starting in February 2022, to have the project complete for its November 4th relaunch. And we're very lucky to have them all here with us today to take us behind the scenes of conserving and curating the historic house turned museum in Luxor's West Bank. So um, for those who, of you who may not already know, Carter House, as it's commonly known, was built by Howard Carter, the British Egyptologist, who discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1910 and remained his base in Egypt until his death in 1939. It was first turned into a museum in 2009 and then conserved and restaged as a house museum by Arce during an intensive nine-month project that ran that ran from February 2022 to November 2022. On November 4th, to mark the centenary of Credit's incredible discovery, it was officially reborn with a ribbon cutting ceremony and lunch attended by Egypt's Minister of Tourism and Antiquities, Mr. Ahmed Aissa, and nearly 300 other guests, that including government officials, foreign dignitaries, descendants of some of the key figures involved in the discovery and the press. There is a lot to dive into here, so we'll begin with Nicholas and Sally, who will walk us through the pre-project planning and the first phase of work that began in February 2022. Welcome all, and let's jump into it. Thank you, Andreas. May I uh, take it away? Sure, absolutely. Hello, everyone. I'm Sally. I'm the other half of RC's Cultural Heritage Projects Department with Nicholas. 
And my role in the Carter House project focused primarily on coordinating the development and the production of the site's new visitor information, both on-site and virtually. Nicholas, of course, was responsible for the physical works and improvements, which focused on conserving the mud brick structure of Carter House and reversing a lot of the modern interventions that had altered the original physical appearance of the building. This was the focus of the first phase of the project from February to March 2022, but before we get into that, I think it would be a good idea to first share how you conceived this project, Nicholas. Why Carter House specifically? I've always been interested in uh, a group of early mud brick houses that were built by foreign archaeologists um, in the south of Egypt. Um, uh, it's a small group of buildings, um, and they were all built out of mud brick, um, using to a certain extent uh, vernacular tradition, but also borrowing heavily from British arts and crafts traditions of architecture. So um, Carter House is one of this group. Um, and I've always had a soft spot for it. So I watched with interest over the years as, first of all, it was converted into um, a museum in 2009. And then I watched with some alarm as uh, it began to be threatened structurally by overwatering the garden. Um, so that was the main cause of, of the project. I, I thought that the, the house really needed another intervention um, in order to save its structure from further destruction. And as there was the um, approaching centenary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb by Howard Carter, uh, that seemed to me a perfect opportunity to try and raise money for the project, um, a good spur, a catalyst for uh, fundraising for the project, and the opportunity also to um, do a representation of the interior of the two of the of the house in order to better reflect Carter's occupancy, his times, the sort of objects that uh, he would have had around him, um, his artwork and other um, key elements, which would improve the visitor experience, along with a full bilingual presentation of the history and culture of the time. So uh, I think that's why I. I wanted to do the project and um, mm. explain something of the timing of the project. So starting in late 2021, um, we spent some time down in Luxor just creating an inventory of the objects of the signage that was already in the house, um, as well as just going through each room and making notes of what would go and what would stay effectively. And I remember that right off the bat, we recognized that the visitor information in the house, as Nicholas has already mentioned, would need an overhaul. Um, and that's primarily because it was very limited in its scope. And as he said, it was only in English. And the house's overall staging, which um, I think Nicholas has, has put it really well, was also anachronistic. That was one of the words that he used to describe it early on. Mm -hmm. Um, didn't deliver the period feel that's so crucial to successful historic house museum visitor experiences. Um, there were also things that hadn't been up, that were or had been operational when it was first converted into a museum in 2009, and they weren't anymore, um, such as the cafe that had been in the garden and the hologram of an actor playing Carter that had been installed in the study. So the equipment for this stuff was all still around, um, but it was really defunct. And that also contributed toward a sense, creating this sense of abandonment and, and neglect in the space. Right. And uh, the garden had really taken over. And um, 
that was one of the things that Nicholas really focused his efforts on at the beginning was mitigating that effect from the garden. Yes. So one of the things that was obvious to me was that the water had to be kept away from the house as much as possible. The water, the considerable amount of water that was used on a daily basis by uh, the gardeners, um, and all planting should be removed for as much well removed as much as possible from the immediate perimeter of the house. So that was uh, an initial move to create this uh, zone around the house that actually reverted to a certain extent to its appearance. Um, when it was built standing in full desert without a single tree or blade of grass. Um, so I created this circle around the house, which was um, more of a dry circle, um, as well as installing um, French drains just in case of, um, of any possible seepage of water underneath the house. Um, and then tackling some of the structural issues to do with repairing damaged walls, replastering um, the exterior and, and parts of the interior, making sure all the windows and shutters worked, um, that sort of thing, um, which was what you might call the structural conservation aspects of the project, um, which complemented and were, were a precursor to the much more complex and interesting task of, of uh, staging the interior as it were. And for that task, I realized that my, um, my, my competency was not in that area. So I needed some help. And we, Sally and I both needed some help in order to, uh, to accurately, I think, present the period feel of the house. And so we turned to Tom Hardwick, um, the Egyptologist, and Mina Milad, um, the founder of the Luxor Times, who together had, um, I think, the requisite skill set to provide us with a very, very interesting um, visitor scenario that was based on Carter's life and, um, and the historical events that surrounded the discovery of the tomb and the aftermath of the discovery of the tomb. And all of this information, whether it was um, in the form of material objects or uh, written texts or uh, archival images, uh, was used uh, in in our attempt to restage the house and i'm sure tom and mina will both explain their roles in more detail um, in a moment right so um if i understand correct you just described the phase one of the work right that you you started by architectural interventions and then mina and uh, tom came in to start the curation of the objects inside the house correct Yes, we had actually two phases of, of structural works, mm -hmm. a, a phase of, that was purely structural works and then a phase of finishing works um, inside the house. So things like the plastering and the painting and, and um, right. repairs, internal repairs. Um, and then that was the point at which um, really we could work as a team together to develop the whole um, curated experience of, of visiting the house um, as it was in the 1920s or 30s, which was how we imagined it um, in terms of the scope of, of the presentation. Right. And do we have like a duration of time that the first, the first phase took place? Like how long did this work? We spent about uh, six weeks on the structural work um, and then about a month on the finishing work. Mm -hmm. um, which was also complemented by further finishing work in September 
um, which was our real um, when the deadline was looming. Um, it was also, of course, dictated to a certain extent by not wanting to work over the summer when it was hottest. Was about I mean, we, were, we were already working in, in May and it was over 40 degrees centigrade. So yeah. um, it was already very, very uh, uncomfortable working conditions. Absolutely. Because there was lots of work also in the gardens outside, right? Yes, a lot of paving work, uh, mm -hmm. the creation of a fully disabled access to the house. Um, so increasing and improving the visitor um, the visitor points of access um, and constructing uh, shelters and, and other things for the support of the visitor information panels, because one of the things we wanted to do was to keep um, as much of the information as possible outside the house so we didn't clutter up the interior with an unnecessarily large number of um, information panels because they do take up space um, and we wanted to try and maintain the period feel and the feel of the building as a house as an inhabited home um, and that's at odds to a certain extent with providing full museum style information mm -hmm. um, throughout the building that's not to say that I mean we ended up with a compromise of course but um, we did want to initially not have too much information inside the building Okay, understandable. So, um, I think on that note, I mean, your names have been already mentioned a couple of times so far, but I think on that note, it would be good also to introduce yourselves, Tom and Mina. Tom? Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Tom Hardwick. I'm an Egyptologist and a museum curator. Uh, I've worked in <clears throat> museums in uh, different countries and continents, and I'm particularly interested in uh, the history of Egyptology and the history of excavation in Egypt. So it was, it's been interesting and at the point extremely enjoyable working on this project to try to help give a, a better sense of Carter's life and environment from uh, throughout his life. He was born in 1874, uh, but he built and moved into Carter House in late 1910, early 1911, and Carter House was his base for his work in Luxor and then in retirement until his death in 1939. Good. Mina? Hello, everyone. I'm Mina Blad, founder and editor of Luxor Times. Uh, and my role in this project was actually to help with the historical content uh, around Carter, and his life and what was happening in Egypt around this time of the discovery of the tomb, the uh, social and political um, mm -hmm. circumstances uh, happened around that time that actually influenced even the daily life for Carter himself living in that house on a daily basis. Okay, so I understand you're the founder of Luxor Times, right? Yes. Okay, so um. Nicholas mentioned that there was lots of work done to develop the visitor um, information plan. So I understand that you both were involved into the research that came through it. So um, is there any certain story that you would like to share with us? How much research you had to put into it? I mean, what was your um, whole experience? You know, you can say from. I mean, after Carter died, uh, the house. Um returned to uh, the Egyptian Antiquities Service from whom uh, it seems Carter rented the land and then built the house 
it became a rest house for antiquities inspectors uh, in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. and, the uh, and the furnishings that were in there, Carter left to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which had its own excavation house uh, nearby at Daryl Buckley. In the, when would it have been the 60s or the 70s? Um, the house had extensions built to the south, um, which were, were kept in the renovations. So when we, we and then it was turned in the, the old house proper became a museum in 2009 uh, without, however, any original furnishings um, and a great deal of uncertainty as to what actually went on in the house. Right. So for part of this, we did, uh, we looked in various archives to see what information there was. And uh, to cut a long story short, there wasn't very much information about the house um, in uh, private letters and diary entries. People said the house was nice and cool in the Arabic style, whatever that means, plain and simple. No one said we walked into this room and it was this color and the following piece of furniture. Um, there were, however, half a dozen photographs of the house taken during Carter's lifetime, probably in the 20s and 30s, which gave us decent views of a large part of what we presume was Carter's study, his workroom, and then also um, Carter's niece, who stayed with him several times, wrote on a postcard, you know, X marks my room, this is Uncle Howard's room, this is the dining room. Mm -hmm. So we could work out the functions of many of the rooms. One area sadly had been demolished in the later renovation, which was the, uh, the servants' quarters. So those we could not include in the, in the renovation. But there was a certain amount of documentary evidence as to when Carter started building the house and what the functions of the rooms were. We also had some uh, got our hands dirty and nearly drew blood, uh, scraping away at the paints in the house to try to see what the lowest level, the color of the lowest level on the woodwork was. Oh. The house, when it was um, for the museum, mm was painted sort of off cream walls and uh, slightly yellower cream on the woodwork. Uh, and when you scraped under the woodwork, you could see there was a, a baby blue uh, paint scheme, mm. and then also sort of a drab olive paint scheme. And then looking at, at the walls themselves, it became clear that they weren't uh, uh, painted, they were covered with mud plaster. So the 2009 uh, creamy, creamy um, scheme was inaccurate. Right. And in uh, a number, however, putting up, turning, setting everything back to a mud plaster finish would have been bold, expensive, difficult, and I think probably would have ruffled a lot of feathers. So we kept some room, we took some rooms back to this uh, mud plaster and drab olive color scheme. And then other rooms, we, we had a whitewash and the baby blue color scheme. It's still uncertain whether this was a, a second phase of Carter's lifetime 
or a very early phase of the antiquities rest house and we've left that ambiguous in the um in the discussion of the Romans yes. but at any rate we're, we're returning it to uh, one or two color schemes before it became a museum in mind uh, so that sort of set the scheme the uh, set the scene for the renovations we could do on labeling and then on filling up these newly painted and plastered rooms with stuff it, it would have been extremely dark i should say yes. if we had actually um returned to its original appearance throughout which was um imperial walls painted plastered with mud it would have been a very very dark set of rooms so although we did go back in some key spaces to the uh, mud finish with um, the green uh, olive drab um, joinery mm -hmm. um, that Thomas mentioned uh, we did decide that for the reasons that he's outlined that it would have been too much to have actually returned the entire building to that state um, so I think it is a compromise but I hope mm -hmm. it's a, a relatively happy compromise and we did strip back certain areas of woodwork as well um, to their original um, unpainted finish um, particularly in in the domed room the large domed room where we had rather beautiful wooden um, squinches supporting the dome wooden elements supporting the dome um, which we returned to their just straight wood finish so and i think so yeah. i mean it, there are very few absolute rights and absolute wrongs in uh, doing a restoration like this uh, it would be sod's law that someone now mm -hmm. turns up watercolors painted by carter of his house <laughs> oops what, when, you know we we did what we what we did on the basis of the evidence we have to hand and i think the most important thing nicholas was modest about this is the structural work to the house in that now uh, it is in a better condition the interior work will you know come and go it, it will need looking at in another generation's time but now uh, most importantly the house is able to look forward to uh, another hundred years in which uh, it can be reinvestigated and reinterpreted so the fact is it's now in a, a far better situation for the future and that's the uh, the ultimate goal of anything like this. You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. More information about our archival projects is available at archives.rc.org. And if you would like to support the RC podcast, please visit rc.org slash podcast. Now we will go back to our episode, Conservation and Presentation at Carter House, with Dr. Nicholas Warner, Tom Hardwick, Sally Al-Sabahi, and Mina Melad. Um, Tom, I have one more question for you. Just, uh, I want to go back to when uh, you start like talking about your research. And as an archivist, I have an interest, of course, to know more about resources, you know? Yeah. So can you share with us like some of the resources that you use to conduct your research? There are a number of biographies of Carter. Mm -hmm. Um, which make mention of this. There are now, uh, in the last decade, a lot of archival materials being put online, so you can search letters written by Carter's by Carter and his colleagues without having to fly to uh, uh, Oxford. The Griffith Institute at okay. the University yeah. of Oxford has 
a lot of carter material uh, there's a private library the peggy joy egyptology library which mm -hmm. now owns many of these old photographs of carter's house i mentioned uh, and we received a great deal of practical help and moral support from our, our colleagues there to give us this information there's also a rather fun letter which could help us nail down the date at which Carter started building the house where he writes to his uh, colleague uh, Arthur Weigel who is the chief inspector of antiquities in Upper Egypt the job Carter had had five years before saying if you can lend me some of the antiquities timber uh, I can make a start on building the house, mm. and the sooner that happens, the sooner I can get out of your own your own rest house that I've been living in uh, for the last few years, and then you can get back to business. And the fun thing, and you can back me up on this, Nicholas and Mina, I think some of the scaffolding is still in use. The wood that really? the antiquities service bought in the ground um, for Karnak in. Uh, the 1890s. There is a store of, of materials from which do go back to the 19th century, um, belonging to the antiquities department, which includes enormous bulks of timber, such as you would not be able to buy today on the marketplace, um, which were used for a lot of the archaeological um, excavations that took place on the West Bank, um, primarily used for shoring up uh, collapsing tombs or descending shafts um, so there is this significant store that's still still um, being used and is of great value actually and that was the the fun one of the interesting things about this was realizing you're you're not so far away in time from this both in you know people's living memories and also the fact that there are still working excavation houses yeah. the, um, mm -hmm. the sort of bureaucratic structure of this has changed less than you might think in 110 years right so was it the uh, Luxor times and Minamilad one of your resources of course it, right. um, it was I think well we can talk about it so it's um it was Fun working with everyone on this. Great, Mina. Um, so, um, can we? Uh, can you tell us uh, some like uh, background on the historic events in Egypt and the social and political changes that were taking place during the discovery, just before and during the discovery? Yeah, sure. Uh, put it on a context, you know. First, can I just say something? Well, don't beat me to it, but I wanted actually to mention that uh, some of the really amazing work that happened is. The bad people can see mm -hmm. the that have under the ground the structural work. That's the bad, you know, without that being done, you know, we wouldn't have had the chance to do anything with the house. And when Nicholas contacted me first about being a part of that dream team working on the house, uh, well, he knew I was like digging and diving in archives for many years on, on this topic, mm -hmm. uh, especially about Carter and the discovery of the tomb. So, you know, the archives of uh, like uh, Egyptian newspapers and magazines and private collections of photos in Egypt. Uh, so it was really fun to be a part of the team uh, and to, as Nicholas wanted to do, put depth into the bigger picture of the house and Carter's life, not just about 
the house or how he used to have his daily life, but also everything was happening around at that time, including, of course, the most famous thing, um, Carter did the discovery of the tomb. So at that time, uh, 1922, when he discovered the tomb, Egypt was going through many changes mm -hmm. in political situation. Uh, the uprising started in 1919 revolution and didn't stop there. Uh, like the political situation was evolving so fast that even when uh, Lord Carnarvon came over after he heard from Carter about the new tomb he discovered, and when mm -hmm. he sent an invitation to the Prime Minister to attend the actual opening, the Prime Minister uh, he said he, he can't make it. Well, we didn't know. Well, they didn't know why then, but now we know because they set the date for Thursday, and the Prime Minister knew. On Wednesday, he will be resigning. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why, <laughs> yeah, that's why he could attend uh, uh -huh. uh, the opening. Uh, also, at that time, the social situation in Egypt was evolving uh, because only a few months or a few years before that, it happened that nearly half a million of the Egyptians uh, actually had to leave Egypt. Because the British army at that time, when they were during the uh, World War One, they used them to do some of the heavy work in Europe and Italy and some other parts. Uh, so all of a sudden, half a million of the population that estimated around 12 million at the time, like left the country. Mm -hmm. So that caused shortage in like crops and stuff. So that also impacted the social life and made the uprising and turmoil against the British even more at that time. But amongst all of this, there was a British man digging in the Valley of the Kings, and uh, he had the great help of the locals, because the local workers there, without them, he wouldn't have be able to do everything on his own. Uh, and of course, after the discovery uh, started, you know, some issues and problems, then, uh, like in 19... Uh, 2021, 2023, uh, later on when Carter started, you know, of course he made a big discovery and I think somehow his ego was getting bigger and bigger than that he thought he owns it. He owns right. that tomb, he owns everything around. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, because the uh, minister of public works at that time, Maurus uh, Hanna, uh, he was one of the small groups around Saad Bashar's rule. Uh, during the 1919 revolution, and then he became a figure himself, a key figure in the new party that uh, was uh, formed, and he became minister under uh, Adli Basha Yakan, that was his first uh, ministry at that time. Uh, he's the one who started like trying to tone down a little bit, or maybe a lot of Carter's ego, and tell him, like him somehow, it's an Egyptian tomb for an Egyptian king on Egyptian soil. Uh, of course, the Egyptian public received that very well, and they even were like chanting and calling him to Khamenei's minister <laughs> at that time. Uh, yeah, and then it goes on with different uh, incidents uh, that you know helped create the interesting story, and sometimes even over dramatic story about the discovery. So these are all like um, interesting facts, historical facts that you have collected through all these years through newspapers and you have in your personal archive, right? 
yeah, that's uh, whether that, uh, personal archive or uh, public archives, maybe I don't call it. Collect the information. Yeah. Yeah. And also the pictures, because uh, many people thought it was only uh, Burton who took pictures, maybe some of the mm -hmm. foreign dignitary who had cameras at that time were taking pictures, but also there were a few locals, uh, whether they are from Cayo, who went over down to Luxor uh, when they heard about discovery, uh, like reporters, mm -hmm. reporters, or even local photographers like Apeya Gaddis. Uh, who was um, descended from Luxor, lived all his life there and had his uh, photography business, which also about we uh, included in the house because when you go into the house, not just about Carter and Carnival and uh, the way he used to live, it's about it, like part of Egyptian history that's along with the timeline and the balance outside, and also about photography, the part in the dark room. You have a sample of the one of the cameras that contemporary to our time uh, of Carter and other samples and shows how they used to develop the photographs. So it tells also a short sideline story about the history of photography itself and right. how it used to be around that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's a good point. Um, but uh, going back to uh, you, Tom, uh, would you like to tell us you know, more things about the Artwork, the reproductions that sure, and so much of the historical context that Mina has researched is visible um, in the bilingual timeline and bilingual panels that are outside the house. Um, in fact, Mina, you, I mean, you've worked on Carter House longer than us. You, you put an exhibition together there, two thousand thirteen. Yeah, which was also on uh, Arabic language accounts of the discovery. Yes. It was, it was at the time of opening of the facsimile of the tomb of Tutankhamun, because we wanted to tell the Egyptian side of the story of the discovery. Yeah, and that's something that... Well, I, I hate to interject here, but I, I remember organizing an exhibition on the 75th anniversary of Tutankhamun's <laughs> discovery, which is, which is more than 25 years ago now. So. Um, so I think I, I I play the old man card here. Yeah. Well, talking about 75th anniversary, we have Arsene's 75th anniversary, oh, like oh. coming also quite soon, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. I think I think uh, what Mina was saying about the photography exhibit was was one I think very important aspect of the interpretation of the interior of the house, actually, too, mm -hmm. because it was Carter's dark room. And it's an extremely unlike, unusual thing to have a dark room from that time, even if it's as primitive as it was. So um, we did want to explain the whole process of photography uh, using glass plate negatives and um, developing those negatives and, and printing up contact prints, a process that is increasingly unknown to the, the younger generations today um, who are born in the age of digital photography. So that was, I think, one aspect. And another very important aspect, I think, um, for the for the presentation of the house was um, Carter's own collecting habits mm -hmm. and Carter's own artistic production, and that was also placed in the context of his family. And I think Tom can speak a bit more about those um, subjects. Was he a collector, Carter? Carter was a very talented artist and came from a family of artists, okay. and that's how he gets his. Uh, 
big break in Egypt in 1891. He goes out to copy uh, tomb reliefs. Mm -hmm. And then uh, um, when he uh, when he's in the wilderness after resigning from the antiquities service, he turns a penny by um, painting watercolors of Egyptian scenes and Egyptian objects, and and indeed uh, uh, collect, collecting objects and and advising as a collector. There was legal trade in antiquities in Egypt until 1983. And until that date, also excavators could hope to receive a share of the objects they found. And so this uh, atmosphere where antiquities are available for sale or as a reward for excavation fueled Carter's and Lord Carnarvon's time in Egypt. Carnarvon was not digging out of the goodness of his heart. He was forming a very fine collection of Egyptian antiquities which through excavation and through purchases uh, curated by Carter, this is now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So we wanted to put the <clears throat> ideas of excavating and collecting objects back into Carter House. It would have been uh, impossible, a, a legal and logistical nightmare to put genuine ancient objects in the cupboards in the Carter's study, which we know from these original photographs did contain uh, pots and small antiquities of that sort. So uh, having renovated the space, we had um, a great deal of fun trying to fill these cupboards with uh, replicas of objects that Carter himself had excavated in the Valley of the Kings at Tel Alamana, the capital of uh, the Pharaoh Akhenaten, Tutankhamun's father, mm -hmm. and then similar types of objects that are still uh, as replicas for sale today uh, um, on the West Bank in Luxor. And to this end, we uh, commissioned uh, um, Ahmed Abdel Fattah, who has been making replicas of tomb reliefs from uh, the limestone of the Theban mountains for how long? Uh, goodness knows. At least 50 years, yes. I imagine. A, he's part of a, a long tradition of, make, of making replicas of ancient objects. He made wonderful replicas of steely and reliefs that Carter had excavated or collected. And then Kenny Alberts, who is an artist at the University of Chicago's Epigraphic Survey, painted some incredible replicas of ostraca, uh, limestone fragments with artists' sketches that Carter had excavated in the Valley of the Kings. Mm -hmm. uh, we filled the cabinets with these. Uh, we also had uh, a good time looking at uh, replica shaktis, uh, scarabs, necklaces, the whole gamut of uh, uh, tourist trinkets that Carter himself would have, uh, I'm sure, dissuaded Lord Carnarvon from buying trinkets like this. Uh, on the walls, we put replicas, both of 19th century photographs of Luxor, which showed the environment Carter lived in, and then of watercolours Carter himself had painted, 
some of which might have been created in the study, what had been in the previous incarnation of the house, a spare room uh, we realized was most likely to be the study. It has this beautiful north light. Um, we, and then also we put uh, replicas of oil paintings by Carter's father, who specialized in uh, saccharine pictures of big-eyed deer and uh, quiet rustics. And then <clears throat> Carter's brother, William, was a talented portrait painter. He painted the picture of Carter that's now in the Griffith Institute in Oxford, the, the sort of iconic image of Carter at the height of his fame. And then a rather nice still life by his brother. None of these paintings ever made it to Egypt. They're all in museums in the UK and the US. But again, they give a sense of the artistic background Carter grew up in. And then I guess the, the final two uh, uh, things we had to stage were the dark room uh, where we made replicas of negatives Carter himself uh, had uh, taken in his excavations in the Valley of the Kings. So these were images that Carter had uh, taken and then developed and printed inside the very same dark room. And then finally, you can't do all of this painting and photographing and excavating without uh, a decent diet. Uh, there are lists of Carter's uh, um, uh, pantry from the 1920s, uh, bottles of whiskey, and then he, he clearly subsisted on a very rich diet of food sent from uh, uh, pot grocers in the United Kingdom, like Fortman and Mason's, Jackson and Piccadilly. We had, again, had a lot of fun trying to find uh, vintage bottles and cans. And this is where our colleagues at uh, Chicago House, the University of Chicago's Ethnographic Survey, has been working year in, year out, I think with a break for World War II, uh, in Luxor on the East and West Bank since was it, 1924. So they're approaching their centenary and in their new Chicago house, which dates to 1933 on the East Bank, they had not thrown a lot away. And the director and staff there were very generous in giving us the run of their magazines. Mm. Uh, we had uh, artists, uh, drawing tables, uh, two beds, again, from the 1920s with uh, uh, rails for Nemusea, um, uh, mosquito nets. Uh, what else did they give us? Photographic developing equipment. Biscuit tins. And the best bits was rummaging in their pantry uh, for 1920s tins of biscuits. Yeah. Uh, a 1928 vintage, oh, what do they call them? Soda siphon. Yeah. One, um, one of four dating to that period, I should say. Wow. So they kept everything. They never threw anything away. Cutlery that if Carter himself did not eat off this plate, then people, you know, colleagues he knew, liked or despised, would have uh, would have had their tinned quail from Fortnum's on it. All of these are now in uh, the pantry cupboard, which... So as a curator, your main concern is to make something that will last as long as possible mm -hmm. without getting dusty. So we've 
knock on wood, put draft excluder around the glass and uh, screwed it in place. And then I think the thing we really had a laugh with was what previous guards and uh, tour guides would point to this little hole by the kitchen and say, this is where Howard Carter kept his dog with this little arched um, space with a, a wood and zinc lined door where clearly he slammed, he slammed it and locked the dog in at night. This, of course, was not the doghouse. It was uh, a, a, a cool space. It's in an internal room. It's the coldest part of the house. And so we restored that again with, with you know, zinc lined door. That's typical of a, a fringe or a, a meat, meat safe. So we um, filled that with uh, replica food of, uh, there's a Christmas pudding, uh, there's a pie, <laughs> there are biscuits, Brussels sprouts, everything. And uh, all uh, these are displayed there, right? Yes, uh, again, behind glass, nice. so uh, that can keep the dust off for a while. Nice. Um, and then finally you go into the, the kitchen, uh, which previously had a, a 1950s fridge in it, mm -hmm. which with the assistance of uh, um, many of the, the staff at Carter House, we filled it with uh, things that were more likely to have been uh, in uh, a kitchen uh, run by uh, um, Egyptian staff in the 20s and 30s, such as uh, what we... The dried dates and the doom, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, the coffee grinder. What's the name of the um uh, the, the the measures for dry dry measures? These medieval the, the rattles, uh, the the uh, the grain measures. Their traditional form of, of grain measure that no longer uh, is used, but was used until the nineteen fifties, I think, um, for measuring out grain and rice and staples like that mm -hmm. and beans. Um, they, they were a positive addition to the, the landscape of the kitchen. And then, Nina, you know, your, um, your friends with the, remind us about the... Ah, the tailor. Yes. Yeah, because we were trying to uh, also find uh, some sort of the uniform that helped in the kitchen would be wearing from around that time. And with Tom and Sally, we went around Luxor. Uh, to the local market there, and then I thought, okay, maybe we'll ask the tailor there, and not for years, maybe if he can do something. And then he brought out this very old, dusty garment that was in Abaya. Mm. Uh, and he said that used to be actually his grandfather's, so it's actually authentic and old around maybe the same time of Carter. And uh, he, like, he was happy for us to use it there. Uh, and actually he went to the house after that. He visited the house and he saw it there himself. Oh, great. Yeah. And so all of these, uh, sort of the, these, the stagings for the walls and the rooms, uh, you can enjoy visiting Carter House, um, but also uh, uh, from the comforts of your, your own home, thanks to the 3D scan, uh, that Andreas made the day before the opening when everything was, uh, we hope, in prime condition and the yeah. right place. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely something to remember. I remember like uh, I I arrived to the hard cutter and, uh, you know, it was just like a few hours before, you know, you wrap up your work and I brought my camera and you were all like running around and uh, definitely there was like lots of pressure to finish on time because the next day was the opening. Um, so, yes, the 3D scanning, that's, that's a good opportunity to... Um, Talk about this. It was uh, yeah. I came. I did the 3D scanning with the Matterport Pro 2 camera. It's a camera that uh, RC has, and we have done like some scanning of uh, sites and monuments before uh, monuments that RC has done work. And uh, that was like um, an amazing experience. First time actually, I had to scan like an entire a house. Usually before it's like it was like an open space. It would be like you know a madrasa. It would be. Um, different monuments, but that gave me this uh, amazing opportunity to capture on 3D a house, which it's not only a house, it's also like a museum at the same time, and this makes it even more difficult and challenging. Um, it took, I remember, two days uh, because uh, we had, I had to go to each space and make sure that all the objects were placed and, you know, there were no dust, there was no, like, um, uh, you know, things that we wouldn't want them to look on uh, on this uh, 3D tool. Because the thing with this 3D scanning is like you capture the environment as it is and you digitally preserve it forever. And whatever you capture that it stays, it lives there forever. So it was very important to make sure that everything was like perfectly clean and all the objects were in the right position. Um, so that was a bit challenging. Also, there were lots of corners and there was all these like uh, panels, you know, and mirrors and glass surfaces that it was quite tricky for me because I didn't want to show like, I didn't want to show reflections. Um, so it was definitely a very challenging uh, 3D scanning. Um, and also all the objects that so um, uh, amazingly you curated that I felt that they had to, you know, be, in the camera you know, they have to be like preserved and so also people would be able to um when they experience the 3d2 they will be able to see these objects rather than just like viewing them so um that was a challenging one but it went well it lasted two days and uh, now this uh, amazing uh, space is also digitally preserved forever and people can have access to it um Currently, it's under rc.org, under the virtual tools, but also people, the visitors who uh, visit the Carter House can scan with their phones. We have like installed in one of the panels, we have installed like the QR code. And um, that gives us also some sort of like information about the visitation rate, uh, because we can get the statistics from the Matterport uh, backend. Um, and um, I can report that uh, in 11 weeks, almost 11 weeks that the uh, 3D scan is online, we had like more than 2,200 uh, unique visitors with uh, more than 3,000 visits. Um, and that's, that shows also like the impact and uh, the, the work that you have done there uh, has. So yes, uh, that was my small contribution in your uh, dream team. And uh, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity not only to see the house and um, the renovations, but also like to digitally preserve it. 
So, and then I do remember that by the time that I finished the scanning, um, the, the next, after like just a few hours, it was the opening, the opening ceremony, which was a big, big event. So, um, speaking of the reopening, it was uh, an excellent event. Uh, it really honored the culture and the people of uh, Kurna. And I especially like the inclusion of the Rababa band, right? That performed during the lunch, the lunch and the inclusion of a member of the descendants of the actual people who were involved in the discovery. Right, Sally? Would you like to tell us more about this? I, I need to know more about the, this band because I've seen like some artists are and visitors like dancing. It, it was really well dancing of the tune. People got up and were <laughs> dancing with them, and uh, that was something that I don't think it started really as an inside joke. But you know, initially when we were talking about the event, there were some suggestions that you know we get that there was going to be a string quartet or a jazz singer, and we had by that point become, I think, so invested in. Carter House as this sort of global story, but especially very much an Egyptian story, and the place of Gorna in that, and mm -hmm. the impact of Gorna in all of this history, um, that we really felt it would be better suited to the event to have local musicians. Right. And um, the hotel that the team was staying at for the duration of the project is run by a really wonderful man called Haida Sayed, and we were chatting with him about this one night over dinner. And he said, well, you're in luck. My chef's assistant is like the best dancer in Gorda and he knows the best Rababa band. And, and that was it, you know, it was just serendipity in a way that's very unique to Egypt. And they were fantastic. Yes. Um, and in that same vein um, of, you know, coincidences or things that only seem to happen when you have that connection to Egypt was, uh -huh the story of Moros Beshahana's grandson. Okay. Um, and this started about a year ago, I mean, right at the very beginning when we were first doing our reading and getting acquainted with the history of this and all of those key characters. And the story of Moros Hanna was one that kept coming up, but I, I saw, at least from what I was mm -hmm. reading, that it was more, um, it got more coverage in Egyptian, sources yeah and um i don't remember how we came up with the idea maybe one of you could remind me that it would be great if we could have descendants of key people from the egyptian players at the oh, event. that's a great idea and um i remember thinking you know if you mean invite them for the for the to have them, to have them because we also the opening, had right? reference to send them okay. there. Yeah. We're thinking that makes sense to have mm -hmm. also that representation from the Egyptian side. And um, I started looking for the Hanna family, and yeah. they're a big family, um, a doctor family. So every other one of them is in the medical profession with some <laughs> lawyers, you know. And one day, Mina and I were speaking, and I brought it up with him. And I was like, would, you know, because he's very resourceful. And I was like, would you happen to know if there are any descendants of, of Moros Bajahana? Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, years ago, I had heard that he had a grandson that lived in Cairo. 
and he's a doctor. But that's all I remember. Okay. So this did not narrow the field for me at all because no, of <laughs> Google search, for, you know, resulted in thousands of Dr. Hannahs, not just in Egypt, but around the world. Yeah. And um, this was on my mind when I traveled to the U.S. a few weeks later, um, just for like a regular, regular visit. And when I was there, I signed up um, or I started going to a new dental clinic that had been recommended to me. And um, the orthodontist, uh, their, um, I said orthodontic surgeon, orthodontist. Anyways, dentist. dentist. Well, he's one that does all the nasty stuff, but yeah. he was examining me and um, was just making small talk and uh -huh. asked me what I did. And I told him, and he wanted to know more about it. So I just mentioned, you know, we're working on this project right now at the house of Howard Carter in Luxor. And he stopped me. He's like, Do you want to know an interesting story about Howard Carter or about the discovery of Tutankhamun? And I was prepared to hear some, you know, you, yeah, you hear a lot of crazy things, you know, about aliens or rumors or things like that. <laughs> and he said, did you know if it wasn't for a man called Morgos Shahana that Carter would have removed a lot of the Tutankhamun objects from Egypt and it was Hannah that stopped him? And that kind of stopped me in my tracks because I was surprised that he knew that because it really wasn't common knowledge. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. some people you were just like researching before. I had been on my you know, days of that. And then he pointed at his name tag and it said, Dr. Henna. <laughs> and he turned out to be the nephew of Moros Besha's, Besha Henna's grandson. And um, we came back to Cairo and got to know the family who were wonderful. There's a whole family of Moros Bashahana descend, you know, um, descendants, and they joined us for the opening. And um, it was a really kind of fantastic full circle in the sense that I, you know, they had really grown up knowing who their relative was, but not really ever being around people who knew who he was or appreciating yeah. the impact he had had historically and culturally in Egypt. And I think that's one of the great things that the event achieved is it got it out there in the media and got people talking again about the much bigger scope of this. It wasn't just mm -hmm. Carter and Carnarvon. It was all of these other people, Egyptian workmen, Moros uh, Hanna, and, and that was really great. I mean, it even got airtime on um, Amr Adib, his show. He's a mm -hmm. major Egyptian TV presenter, and he was talking about Moros Hanna for, I mean, probably the first time since the <laughs> discovery. I mean, since a TV presenter or an influential journalist was mentioning this thing. And um, I think that really is a testament to the project and how it honored this discovery in a way that hadn't previously been done or was not present in Luxor um, until this point. I'm really glad. Uh, and again, I can't stop from saying how fun the opening was how well attended it was, the music, uh, dancing, seeing the descendants, uh, having to meet them. And of course, like uh, one of the sponsors, uh, Nicholas was there, I mean, among several other people. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about the donors of this like amazing project? Well, it was a great opportunity to thank um, our donors and those who'd also given in kind to the project. Mm -hmm. So there were, um, I think at least 250 people it's rather too many people, in fact, than this, the place could sustain um, and 
all of us were giving tours to um, different groups of people through the house um, during that that afternoon. Yeah, um, and you and Tom were extremely busy. I would see you like going like tour after tour. Yes, yes, out, I don't think, out. yes. Um, and um, it was a chance to thank primarily um, our, our main sponsors who were the Adina Sabin Family Trust, um, USAID, um, and the Houston Museum of Natural Science, um, who are all um, generous um, in, in helping us um, to achieve the goals of the project. And of course, I should emphasize here that none of this would have been possible without the full support and collaboration of our colleagues in the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities, um, who are the owners of the site, obviously, mm -hmm. um, and who uh, participated also in the drafting process for all of the visitor information. Um, it was something that um, was a collaborative um, exercise as well that we went through with our Egyptian colleagues. Um, so it's important to mention that as well. Yeah. But um, Mina, going back to you now, it's, um, it's interesting what uh, Nicola just said, you know, it's like our colleagues in Ministry of Antiquities, the people who work there. So, I mean, we visit Luxor and we come back to Cairo, we're all based in Cairo. So I understand you live in Luxor. So can you tell us, can you give us a feedback of how the local community had um, received this work, you know? Well, as you said, I live in Luxor, so uh, I pass by or I visit Qatar mm -hmm. more often, maybe more than you. Uh, and after the reopening, like I've been hearing the positive feedback from locals and visitors, like locals around, you know, now they see there's actually like bilingual uh, signage everywhere, mm -hmm. and they actually get to learn more information. Even locals maybe didn't know about you know, Carter about discovery, about the events was happening around that time, because, you know, they didn't live like 100 years ago, mm -hmm. and maybe they heard a little bit from their, like, grandparents about it, but they learned from it, and the ones who visited uh, Carter House before and after the project, they can see also the difference, and, uh, like, what uh, impact, you know, it did uh, on locals, and uh, even, like, the Ministry of Antiquities, mm -hmm. uh, like the inspectors, they want to get the Carter House because some of them who are older now, they stayed at that house when it used to be a rest house, yes. like in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so they have memories themselves there. Uh, some of them, you know, when they go back and see it now, it's all, of course, different from when they used to uh, live in it. Uh, but they see the difference in a good way that it provides more information and more context about the house itself as uh, a witness of uh, the Egyptian history in this local area. And actually local people are so excited and they are hoping, you know, also in the future at the second phase, there will be uh, like more activities that will attract people to spend more time around the house mm -hmm. and get involved more uh, like local community uh, to attack them to be a part of the project somehow. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And that's why I always wanted to um, get uh, Nicholas and Sally's uh, view on that. I mean, um, knowing that this um, house has such a great historic value and it provides a wealth of information 
after the curation you did and so many people have lived there as you said you know back in the days um so what are the future steps you know how the how, what are the plans of the team of rc of the community to move ahead with this like amazing project well there is a phase two um okay. and the phase two is something that we are looking for funding at the moment to accomplish um we have got the first part of it funded uh, which is the development of a shaded children's um, outdoor classroom essentially but also a place mm -hmm. where the community can sell handicrafts um, and as a sort of multi-purpose shaded space but we want to do more than that we want to build essentially something that is missing on the west bank which is a large space for uh, lectures films uh, trainings um, and um, exhibitions um, together with subsidiary training spaces as well um, an outdoor theater and new visitor toilets all of this on the north side of the house um, beyond the garden um, because these are things that uh, in order to develop the full potential of the site we need to to be able to provide and provisionally this has been given the, the title of the west bank archaeology center mm -hmm. um, and it's certainly um, something that the local um, inspector of antiquities is very eager to have because the west bank of luxor is one of the areas of the most archaeological activity probably anywhere in the world yeah. and uh, there is no venue to present that work to um, the local community on the west bank and it's something that all of the archaeological teams would quite like to do um, but they have nowhere to do it so this i think would be a real opportunity to um, provide something more for the future and it's also something that's tied in with the fact that we not only have carter's house there but we also have the replica of the tomb of Tutankhamun itself which was constructed in 2014 by um, factum arte based in madrid um, under the direction of adam Lowe. and that also is i think a very useful part of the puzzle because um, with a replica tomb there we can also introduce replica objects for the teaching of, um, of, of children um, so that they have a direct you know, hands-on contact with the material culture um, uh, of Egypt that is perhaps most famously represented in the astonishing collection of artifacts that was discovered in Tutankhamun's tomb. So that's what we've got lined up for the future um, it will take, I think, some time to find funding to pull it off. Um, I'd like to build in uh, natural materials as much as possible. So either using mud bricks or a rammed earth construction for the bulk of the modern construction there. Um, so it's tied in more with the landscape um, and with the vernacular traditions of um, this part of Egypt. So you're actively looking for uh, funding to continue this work? Yes, yes, we have we have a certain amount um, already um, uh, in place, um, but not enough for the entire project. So we are looking for funding for that um, to expand the the offerings mm -hmm. that we can we can make from this unique heritage site. Yeah, I wish you good luck because it's it's a great project and it will only like provide even more to the community there by expanding it to the West Bank Archaeology Center as it was, as it's planned, it's your idea. So 
I just feel um, it's a bit unfair because Sally has said like a fun fact about uh, this uh, project. And I would like to hear maybe an anecdote here from you. I mean, Mina mentioned something also about the tailor and the his stories. So Nicholas, do you have any fun fact that we can share with our audiences? Well, <clears throat> We did have to furnish a certain number of articles of clothing um, okay. for the displays inside the house. And so, uh, uh, not known to, to most people, but um, I had a rather ancient pair of very well-made British shoes that no longer <laughs> fitted me. So uh, they are a small token of my presence on the side, which you will see in the showcase on the right-hand side, well-polished. As Howard, as Howard no doubt kept his shoes well polished and no doubt made by the same English firm of shoemakers that made his shoes too. Use and reuse, right? Absolutely. No, we're all into sustainability here. Excellent. <laughs> what about you, Tom? Any fun facts? Uh, <clears throat> my embarrassing anecdote is that I invited my parents over to come and witness the opening and be proud and rental and all that sort of thing. And the day before the opening, I press ganged them into helping cleaning the house, which again is uh, is sustainable, intergenerational. <laughs> and all they, the buzzwords. they did a very good job. They did an excellent job. And they also provided a very delightful object for the kitchen, which was a double mousetrap, a his and hers mousetrap. I keep on trying to imagine this trap, two tiny mice, you know, condemned to die together <laughs> so we had we had some fun with the project oh, and, sure. and I, I have not lingered on the the mm -hmm. administrative aspects which will take some years to uh, to filter through my system but um, I think the outcome was worth the pain that oh absolutely absolutely thank you very much thank you all um thank you so much for this insight into the Carter House project and of course sharing the future plans of it. I'm pretty sure that lots of people will find it interesting to know what is ahead. Um, it's fascinating and uh, really, really leaves us with the appreciation of how much research and passion went into the project. Research from all the members of the team. Um, I encourage everyone uh, to visit the Luxor and uh, to the Carter House and uh, for the armchair tourists, I uh, suggest to look into the virtual tour, which they, again, they can find it under rc.org uh, in virtual tours. So again, thank you very much, Nicholas, Tom, Sally, and Mina. It was a real pleasure having you here. And good luck with all your future endeavors. Thank, thank you. you. You just listened to Conservation and Presentation at Carter House with Dr. Nicholas Warner, Tom Hardwick, Sally Al-Sabahi, and Mina Melad, and RC's Archives Manager, Andreas Kostopoulos. Please visit our website at www.rc.org slash podcast for more information or contact us at podcast at rc.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>